0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, the first chapter. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Today I'm embarking on a very ambitious venture, and that is to teach through the book of John. Someone said, Well, you'll probably die before you finish. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be bad. It'd be awesome to be able to go to be with the Lord while teaching the Word. But the book of John has been called the greatest book of the Bible by many people because of its purpose. We read from the 20th chapter the thesis or purpose of the book, that people would read it and in so reading it come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that in reading it they would believe in His name, and believing in His name, they might have eternal life. What a wonderful purpose, and how integrally important that is to our lives. John is called by many scholars as the theologian. His gospel is different, as you well know, from the other three gospels. They're called the synoptic gospels, which simply means to see with the same eye, They shared certain materials with one another, not directly but indirectly, in writing their Gospels, with things in each of those Gospels which are unique to each particular Gospel. But John really slows down. This book was written years after the other Gospels were written, and it's very contemplative. The other Gospels give us a sense of rapid movement. But when you get to the Gospel of John, things really slow down. Now, I'm doing something that I have never done before, as far as I can recall. I've been at this for 40 years, so it's possible that I did it once before. But I have, I believe, been led by the Spirit as I've moved in the direction of beginning this very important venture to simply look at the Gospel itself without going elsewhere in the New Testament. Assuming the role of one who would have first read this book. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me in the coming months. That you would ask God to speak to you as if this were the first time you had ever read the Gospel of John. Don't go venturing out searching for insights from other places. Just let God speak to you through his unadulterated word in the Gospel of John. That... ...will be difficult for any of us to do, especially for me since I've done so much studying of the Bible. I'm only going to refer in my preparation and in my presentation to anything that would have been available to those who first read it. And that would have been what we now call the Old Testament. I'm going to refer to the Old Testament because that was the Scripture of the New Testament church and the New Testament era... The New Testament was not in circulation at the time of the writing. There had been many books which had been written, but they had yet to be compiled into one form and distributed as one piece of literature. So I'm going to refer to the Old Testament frequently in my own preparation and also in my presentation. Then I will take the liberty to look at the other writings of John the author of this Gospel. I will look at times at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then the book of Revelation. These were books which he wrote also under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this is going to be a memorable experience for me, and I'm assuming because it's true for me, it will be in some sense true for you. If you have someone whom you really love, and you would like to introduce that someone to Jesus, I would suggest you start praying about inviting that person to come in the coming Sundays when we will open the Gospel of John and trust Jesus. What I've been asking the Lord, I said, Lord, would you please reveal yourself in this work like you did the first people who ever read the work? And I believe that's the prayer he will answer. Because he's more interested in people coming to know God through him than we would with our family and our friends. And you can invite your friends with utter confidence that if they will come, they will encounter the living Christ. Let's pray for each other in that regard. That God would do that. Well, with that as an introduction to the study of the book of John. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to read verse 14, and then 16 through 18. And look at these verses in some detail this morning, seeking to hear the voice of God through the Word of God. John 1, 1 in the New American Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him or through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, if you'll glance down the page to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at 16. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God's invisibility has created all kinds of anxiety for people throughout history. Take Isaiah, for example. In Isaiah 64, verse 2, listen to his plaintive cry to God. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that we may know your name. This passage of Scripture is the answer to Isaiah's prayer, and perhaps to your prayer, that you would know the name of the invisible God. His name, the Word. The book of John is written by an eyewitness. It's been substantiated throughout the history of the church, dating back to the first century A.D., that John the Apostle was indeed the one who wrote this book. One of his disciples, Papias indicated that John was the author of this great gospel. He was an eyewitness. We know this. He is the one whom Jesus loved. It's not that the others were not loved by Jesus, but he had a special relationship, a closer relationship on the human level with Jesus than anyone else. He was an eyewitness. A careful study of the book of John would indicate that the book of John is written by someone who is a Semite, someone who knew Semitic language. Hebrew, we know, is the language of the Old Testament. But by the time that the Jews reached this point in their history, the language Aramaic had replaced Hebrew as the common tongue. Now, Aramaic is also a Semitic language. That is, it's a sister language of Hebrew. You may recall that the Hebrew people were exiled for 70 years in Babylon, and the language of Babylon was... Aramaic. So they adopted that language, brought it back when they came out of exile, and Jesus' native tongue would have been Aramaic. John also had Aramaic as his native tongue. And when people who are scholars read the book of John, what they agree upon is whoever wrote it was a person who had a Semitic language because of the parallelisms that appear that are, quite frankly, Semitic in nature. And then, whoever the author was, I'm assuming it's the Apostle John, he was one who was very familiar with Jewish customs. It is he who talks about purification for ritualistic purposes. He speaks of the lighting of the candelabra during the Feast of Tabernacles. It would have had to have been a Jewish person who would have known that. He also makes several topographical references that would suggest that he knew Palestine like the back of his hand. The sheep gate in chapter 5. Also, the praetorium during the Passion of Christ. The pavement, particularly of the praetorium, that was where Jesus was held in captivity in anticipation of his execution by crucifixion. Also, he was very specific with numbers. There were six water pots At the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, there were 153 fish which had been caught in the post-resurrection experience of Christ from the Sea of Galilee. Remember when Peter saw the Lord on the shore? He jumped into the water and just made a beeline for the Lord. Remember that? We understand that he knew people's names that are not mentioned in the other three Gospels. Nathaniel, Nicodemus, Lazarus. Malchus. So, this was an eyewitness who would have spoken Aramaic as his primary language. And obviously, the book of John is written in Greek. And it's beautiful Greek, by the way. It's so simple. It's the place that people who are learning the Greek language and then applying it to the reading of the New Testament cut their teeth on. Because it's so simple, but it's so profound. As we're going to see, even in this passage of Scripture, incredibly profound. So, before we go any further, we need to talk about this concept of the Word. What does that have to do with our understanding of who God is? Well, remember, Aramaic was the language. There is a body of literature which is simply referred to as the Targums. And that word Targums means literally translation. It was the translation of... The Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic. And whenever the Word of God is mentioned in the Targums, it's clearly a reference to the name of God. That is, to the person of God. And it speaks very significantly at the point of God's closeness to His people. God's not estranged from His people. God is not unwilling to relate to His people. And the name of God, I am that I am. Remember, that's the way in which God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush. A personal God, not a distant God. Now, this flies in the face of so many alternative religions in the world. There are people today who are very fond of saying there are many roads which lead to God. Well, there's only one God that we can know who is a personal God, the God of the universe Wants to know in you. Wants to know you and me personally, and he is the Word of God. I'm going to make two statements in general, and then we're going to look at each one in great detail. Here's the first statement, and I'll give you the second, and we'll come back and see why I say this is what is true of the Word of God. First of all, and this will come no surprise to you, I'm sure, the Word of God is The incarnation of God. And the second thing we're going to look at is the Word is the explanation, or better still, the interpretation of God. So we're going to look at the incarnation of God in the Word, and we're going to look at the interpretation of God in the Word. Let's begin with the first statement. The Word is the incarnation of God. Martin Luther said this about The incarnation of God in the Word. He said, this doctrine maintains and supports all other doctrines. And what he was saying is, this is the most foundational and important doctrine of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. No incarnation, no crucifixion that would have had capacity to save us from our sins. No resurrection from the dead. God had to be incarnated in order that you and I could be redeemed. Luther had it right, I'm sure. I agree 100% with him. We see in this passage, beginning with verse 1, the cosmic word. The prehistoric word, if you will. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word translated beginning means the origin. It's the idea of when all things began. And this rings a bell, I'm sure, for you. It did for me. The opening lines of our Bible in Genesis, how does it begin? In the beginning. Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. But this book is about a new beginning. Because we know from the book of Genesis... That Adam sinned, he and Eve fell from grace, and humanity was distorted greatly. The image of God was blurred a lot in the lives of people. And to this day, the residue of their sin still rests in our own natures. We are born children of Adam. But the book of John will tell us how we can become new creatures, how we can be as Jesus speaks to John and to uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, You must be born again, born anew, born from above. In Genesis 1 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there are many people today and many throughout the history of the interpretation of the Bible and the Christian faith who said, You see, Jesus was created. He was not God, but He was a created being. The problem with that is the language would indicate differently. Certainly, the heavens and the earth were created by God. But also, in this case, we see in the beginning, not the word was created, but the word was in the beginning. So that presupposes there was a state of being in which the Word found Himself before the beginning of time. He preexisted. He is eternal. The text goes on to say, and the Word was with God. I'm tempted to stay longer here than I'll be able to. But it speaks of face-to-face communication between the Word And the one whom we know as God the Father. Because the word with means to or toward. It pictures movement toward God. In the parable of the prodigal son, you may remember when the son came to his senses, he said to himself, I will arise and I will go home to be with my father. The word with there, used by Luke, is the very word that is used here by John, speaking of how the Word was with God. So it was a going home, as it were. And what that would suggest to us is the Word was at home with God. That was who He was. He lived in this kind of intimate relationship with God. This special intimacy with the Father would suggest that He is, that is the Word, is a person With God, distinguishable from the Father, and enjoying a personal relationship with the Father. Now look down at verse 18. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Let's just stop there and consider this phrase. In the bosom of the Father is saying what the first verse in the second clause says. The Word was with God, He was in the bosom of the Father. Matthew Henry says this, he says, the prophets sat at the feet of God as scholars. The Word was in the bosom of the Father as His friend. Can you imagine? As we were singing, be still and know that I am God. And there's a line there, I've already forgotten it, but the gist of it is that we can fling ourselves into the breast of the Father. Now think about the Word. We know Him, Jesus. Think about Jesus. Jesus became one of us. The Word became flesh. In order that He might become the sacrifice for our sin. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you of all people forsaken me? And in that moment, he was experiencing the absence of God. I can only imagine that Jesus, as he's depicted in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Scripture tells us in the Gospel of Mark, how when he went into the Garden He fell on the ground and he prayed to the Father. Now, what does not appear to our English reading eyes is very, very helpful for us to understand what Christ was going through in that moment. Because the word translated fell is not one that means he just fell one time. But it speaks of his repeated falling on the ground. Can you imagine our Savior doing that for us? Falling on the ground, getting up, falling on the ground, getting up, falling on the ground, getting up. up. And crying out for his father. And then on the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wanted to fall into the bosom of the Father, where he had been from time immemorial and then in eternity prior to that. Unbelievable. You see the words personal nature? Personal in relationship with the Father? and also desiring a personal relationship with you and with me, the word was with God. He was face to face with God is the way the C.K. Williams translation puts it, and I think he got it right. Perhaps you have heard what the word face actually means, or it sounds like in the Greek language. It's prosopon. And the word pros, which is the preposition which is used to speak of his being with God, the Father, that is the Word, is embedded in this word for face. It's the idea of witness. It's the idea of being with Him. Now, let's read the last part of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. Notice that's a verb of being. It's a verb which signals existence. And in this prologue, John contrasts the word was over and over again with the word became. And the word became is different than was because was speaks of existence that preceded history as far as the word was concerned. Whereas the word became speaks of someone's being born. It's used, for instance, in John 8, 58, where Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Wow, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Jesus was very conscious of who he was. A lot of people say, Jesus never said he was God. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. We're going to find that out in the Gospel of John. It's very obvious. He was conscious of his deity. He was conscious. Conscious of his pre-existence. He knew all these things. The word was God. Some people say, well, when this says the word was God, it just simply means he was divine. Not so. Why? Because John had another word at his disposal which he could have used to say he was divine. It's close to the word for God, theos. It's actually theos, a little insertion of one vowel In the middle of that word, changes everything. He didn't use the word for divine. He used the word God. The cosmic word. And then the incarnate word. Pliny the Younger corresponded with the then emperor of the Roman Empire, Trajan, around the turn of the first century A.D., And he was making an observation about Christians. He says, Christians have designated a certain day when they rise before daybreak and they gather together and they sing antiphonally to Christ as to a God. The New Testament church understood Jesus is God. The Word is God. If we want to know who God is, we have to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. He is not simply the Son of God. He is God the Son. Co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. We have the opportunity to know Him because He became flesh. One of us. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Uh, Many of you know what that means. The word literally he tabernacled among us. He set up tent. He moved into our neighborhood. It was really his neighborhood. We're going to see that next week, perhaps. It was really his neighborhood, but he moved into our neighborhood. And it's interesting that unlike Allah, for instance, that Jesus, God, is very personal. And He is not one who has come to live in seclusion for fear that He would be contaminated by us in our sin. To the contrary, He has come and He has dwelt among us. He has built His tabernacle, His tent. He has shown up. The fact that He tabernacled would indicate that He was not going to stay here forever. He ascended into heaven after He was raised from the dead. We know that. But nevertheless... The text says, dwelt among us, and we, and this shows eyewitness involvement, John, and there were other people, we beheld his glory. There's a lot that's been said about the glory of God. I like what Moses says in Exodus 33, 18. He prays to the Lord and he says, show me your glory. Now, that would indicate something to us. If something's shown to me, that would suggest, I can see it, right? And we can see the glory of God. Whenever the glory of God shows up in the Bible, it's typically accompanied by light. The word glory itself simply is kabod, which means heavy or heaviness. And the glory of God is heavy. Remember when Solomon's temple was completed and the priest... Tried to go in there and exercise their responsibility. The glory of the Lord was so strong that they couldn't even stand up to exercise priestly duty. It was waiting. The glory of God is waiting, but it's also visible. We see that throughout Scripture. And they could see the glory of God. John, Peter, Peter. And James saw the glory of Jesus, didn't they, on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration? And all of a sudden, the glory came shining through, and they saw the real identity of Jesus as he and they met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Word is the incarnation of God. Also, the Word is the explanation, or better still, the interpretation of God. Look again at verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, but I think you'll enjoy my excursion into something a little more technical. The Word which is translated explained is letter for letter if it were transliterated from greek into english we would come up with a word that you may not be familiar with it's the word exegesis exegesis is the science of interpreting texts especially texts of antiquity it's the science of interpretation so when the bible speaks of the word being the explanation of God, he explained God. So, he interprets God. He is, listen carefully, the autobiography of God. I love biographies. People write biographies about people who interest them. And they tell us about them. They try to interpret their lives to us. Occasionally, people will write an autobiography. It's rather daring and Prideful, I think, to write an autobiography. But when they do write autobiographies, they're never fully clear on what is true about themselves. Because they have blind spots. But with regard to Jesus, the Word, there is no blind spot in Jesus. He knows exactly who He is. And He is the one who gives us the precise picture of who He is. The Father is. You want to know who the Father is? I know I've said that at least once already today. I'm not losing my memory yet. But what what do we do? We look to Jesus, right? And we know who God is. And all anxiety begins to ebb away when we really get a picture of the Lord and look at the Lord. The autobiography of God. How does the Word interpret God for us? Well, first of all, in His creativity. Now, many of you could quote Psalm 19, maybe in full, but the opening line says, The earth, heavens and earth declare the glory of God. So, God is a revealing God. And He is a creating God. He created everything. He created everything and you and me. Look back up at verse 3. This speaking of the Word in His pre-incarnate state, all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. That's a comprehensive statement, isn't it? God the Son, Jesus Christ, created everything. It's fascinating to consider all the things which He has made. There's a book by a man named Francis Collins, who until recently, and he may still serve as the director of the National Institute of Health. It's called The Language of God. Collins was homeschooled, but he was homeschooled in a non-Christian environment. That's kind of odd, isn't it? We typically associate homeschool with conservatism. But he was raised very liberally, I would say, on a farm in Virginia. He went to the University of Virginia. My best calculations would suggest he probably went there when he was about 16. He went early, graduated from there when he was about 20. Then he went to Yale and earned a Ph.D. in three years. So at the age of 23, he was not satisfied to be a chemist. That's what he majored in. Chemistry, So he decided he wanted to become a doctor. He went to the University of North Carolina, became a doctor. But along the way, he made a transition from focusing on chemistry to biology. As a young scientist, he said, I don't want to deal with that messy biology. But when he began to study DNA and genetics, that all changed. And he was one of the leaders in the genome project to study the human gene. Amazing. And this is what he says in the introduction to his book, *The Language of God*. He says that in our bodies, now this is this is mind-boggling. In my body, in your body, there are a trillion cells, and in every cell, there's a nucleus. And in that microscopic cell, and of course, microscopic nucleus there is a molecule of DNA in all trillion cells. And there is enough information in the DNA in every cell in my body to fill up 40 Encyclopedia Britannicus. That is a million pages in one strand of DNA in my body. And do you know that every molecule of DNA in my body has three billion subjects memorized? Incredible. And the size of a strand of DNA, that molecule, you know how big it is? Its diameter is one billionth of a millimeter. And they all work in concert. All these molecules of DNA work in concert and flawlessly to accomplish the purpose of building us up. Now, who do you think? Do you think chance chance is responsible for that? That's just one illustration which I could borrow this morning. To suggest that God is the master designer. He is the creator. And Jesus is is the one through whom all that occurred. Jesus is the agent of creation. He reflects God in his creativity. He also reflects God in his vitality. In John five twenty six, this is what John writes. He says, For even the Father has life in himself, and... He gave to the Son also life in Himself. Father God has life. Son of God has life. They share life. They are life. In Him was life. If you sense an absence of vitality in your life, the absence is directly related to perhaps the absence of God in your life. And remember the purpose of the writing of the book of John? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in believing, we might have life. And guess what that word is? It's the same word that's used here. It's not biological life. It's spiritual life. We might have life in Him. He reflects God the Father in His vitality. It should be no surprise. He's God, right? Also in His luminosity. Look at the text. It says in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Only by God's revelation in the Word, capital W, can we receive the right understanding of our existence. If you're looking today... Maybe there's a person present who's looking for ultimate meaning in life. I hope you're thinking like that. Because you have to look no further than to Jesus Christ, who Himself is the light. He illuminates our lives. In John chapter twelve thirty six, this is what Jesus says. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. The Bible says that before we were born again... We were blind. We walked in darkness. And we don't know where we're going. If you have no direction in life, if your life is aimless, understand that Jesus wants to light your path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I know that when that was written by the psalmist, he was thinking of the written word. But, of course, the written word behind that is the living word of God. So, he explains God to us in his creativity, in his vitality, in his luminosity, and in his authority. Let's read verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John, we will see, uses the word darkness in contrast to light throughout the entire gospel. For instance, let me give you this illustration. In the 13th chapter, after Jesus has pointed out that one among their number would betray him, and he basically gives Judas marching marching orders and says, go. And the text says, Judas went out and it was night. Contrast, darkness and light. And the idea of darkness here is not just physical darkness, obviously, but it's also Spiritual darkness. I'll go back now to a verse from which I read a moment ago. John chapter 12, verse 36, the first part of which says, while, Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. And that word overtake is the same word which is used by John in verse 5 when he says the darkness did not comprehend it. Why the difference? Well, the word means to seize. The word that's translated comprehend here or overtake in john twelve thirty six means to see something so you can see how something can be seized by the mind we can grasp something in our mental capacity, but also it 's the idea of use of seizing someone to do them harm, and the darkness we know who the prince of darkness is, who is he Satan, and he wanted to Overtake or overpower Jesus. But that didn't happen. Now, here's something that's really important for us to consider here. Look again at verse 5 and allow me to read it yet another time. And the light shines in the darkness, present tense, right? And we would think the next clause would read, The darkness does not comprehend it. But that's not the case. Instead of using the present tense, what does John choose to use? He uses the past tense. There are several past tenses. This is the aorist tense, which means something happened, and that was it. The darkness did not comprehend it. What's this referring to, do you suppose? I would suggest to you it's referring to the cross of Christ. That Jesus was shining, and the devil did his dead level best to do the Lord Jesus in. But Jesus, in His authority took authority, even in that moment of crucifixion, he exercised his authority over the devil. And the devil was defeated. He was thoroughly and roundly defeated, incapable of fulfilling his scheme. Our God is a sovereign God. I'm talking about the Father now. And I would say Jesus likewise is a sovereign Lord. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is. The Word is God. In Isaiah 42 8, God says, The Lord is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So, how do we see in this passage that the glory is given to Jesus? Well, it it's, should be clear now. Jesus is God. It wasn't given to him in time. He had it in eternity, didn't he? He is God. And he has that glory. And a part of that would be the picture of his being one of great authority. We also see the explanation of God in Jesus, in his charity. Because the Bible says in verse 14, in the last part, That Jesus, the word, is full of grace and truth. The word grace speaks of incredible charity. Now let's look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And if we go up to verse 16, the scripture says, For of his fullness we, that would be us, who know Christ have all received and grace upon Christ. Do you know the only time that the word grace is used in the whole gospel of John is in these first 18 verses. Doesn't show up again, but it is the book of grace, isn't it? It shows the incredible charity, the great grace of God to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is full of grace. Let me stop just a moment and talk about a matter that I became familiar with in preparation for the message. A German editorial made the observation about Western movies that there's always or almost always an out-of-towner who is a hero who comes in to save the day. Right? And I got to thinking about that and I thought of two movies that I've seen. I liked one. I didn't care for the other. The one I like was Open Range. Any of you see Open Range with Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner? And the primary actor is Duvall, and he is Boss Spearman. He's an open ranger. He's, with the help of Costner's character Charlie and a couple other guys, they're taking the herd to market. As they're making the trek across Montana in the 1880s, they encounter a bad dude. His name is Denton Baxter. He's an Irishman and he's a robber baron. He's come to take up all the land and he hates open rangers. And so there is a problem that arises. But the problem is even bigger in the town where everybody lives, Harmonville. And the result is that these outsiders come in. They win a victory. They're the heroes. Jesus is, in a sense, an out-of-towner. Would you agree with this? He came from heaven to be one of us, and he is the ultimate hero hero. Well, I'm not going to tell about the movie I don't like, because we're running out of time anyway. <laughs> but I, I wanted to let you think with me a moment about how he is. Jesus is the ultimate out-of-towner, and he's full of grace. He's charitable we see that he explains God in his integrity. He's full of grace and what? Truth. If we were to take time to turn to Exodus 34, 6, we would see God describing himself in this way, that he is full of loving kindness, that would be the Hebrew equivalent to grace, and truth is what the New American Standard translates the word. It's really faithfulness, which would be the equivalent of the word truth. God the Father is full of grace and truth. A lot of people try to paint a very dim picture of God the Father. He's some ogre that sits in heaven looking over the balcony on earth and he loves just to make people miserable. That's not true. That's not the nature of the Father. And Remember, the Father's nature is reflected in whom? The Word. Jesus, the Word. And then... Jesus explains the Father in His humility. And this is sort of a general observation. We see how rich the Word was in verses 1 through 3 in His pre-incarnate state, His cosmic state. Then we get to verse 14, we see how poor He became. He became one of us. Can you imagine what a step down that was for the Lord Jesus Christ? Unbelievable what He did for us. And lastly, I'm going to say, He reveals God to us, explains Him, interprets Him to us in His availability. God says in the book of Amos chapter 5, He says, Seek me and live. The Lord wants us to live. And He knows in order for us to live, He knew that in Amos' day. He knows that today. If we're going to really live, we have to seek God. And we can find Him if we seek Him with all our heart, is what Jeremiah says. And we find Him in the person of Jesus Christ. And this text says, of His fullness, we have all received, verse 16, of His fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. Grace in addition to grace. The first grace was the law was given to us through Moses. It's the Word of God. It's great grace. And it informs us of our absolute inner capacity to make ourselves right with God and pushes us in the direction of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Of course, the truth was realized, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses was not the law, Jesus is. Of his fullness we have all received. Now let's think about this for a moment. God became human So that we as humans could become human again. Remember what I mentioned about Adam and his sin? Remember? He became less than God intended humans to be when he sinned. And the rest of us inherited that tendency as well. So, what Christ has done, he has come to share his fullness with us. Can you believe that? He's full of grace and truth. What would it be true of you and me if we're full of Him? We're full of grace and truth. He lives in us. Are we creative? By all means. Spiritually we're creative. We've all been given spiritual gifts and we're to employ them in such a way as to serve one another and bring glory to the Lord. You have talents through which your gifts can be exercised. Know that God has given you creative ability. You're created in the image of God. You're being recreated in the image of Jesus the Son. Creativity. Vitality. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. And when Christ's life is in me, I become an invigorating person. Not just simply an invigorated person, but an invigorating person. Because Christ is in me. When I let Him be who He is in me, then He gets out of me into other people. Believe it or not, He wants to do that with all of us in whom He dwells. To quit thinking about ourselves and begin to focus on other people. His luminosity is in us. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That will help others to understand who God is. If we let our light shine, if we trust Christ, if we don't care who gets the glory, we just serve the Lord. Authority. Authority especially over the enemy. Greater is he who is in you, 1 John 4, than he who is in the world. That's obviously a reference to Satan. And the Bible says elsewhere that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I would say that's authority. Now, we have a formidable foe in the person of Satan. But we have a greater Lord. And he lives in us and empowers us to exercise authority in this life as Children of God and followers of Christ. What about charity? Yeah. God wants us to love each other, doesn't He? He wants us to be people of grace. He wants our speech to be seasoned with salt and full of grace. We're to be men and women who speak grace. We're to be people who speak life. We're to be people who build people up. Not tear them down. We can be. Because Christ lives in us. And He wants to live His life through us. We're to be humble men and humble women. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That's the call on your life and my life. And it's possible because of the Lord Himself. People of integrity. We're to speak the truth in love. Awesome, isn't it? We don't have to hide Worried that people will know stuff about us that will make us unacceptable to them. That's not to say we're just bombing our garbage out over everybody. not what I'm saying. But we need to be real. We can't be real. The only real people are people who know Christ and in whom Christ dwells. And we don't have anything to prove. We only have a Savior to serve and people to love. And this dear man who wrote this book John he was very personable just like Jesus is in fact as he closes the little epistles of second John and third John he says something like this as he concludes that little letter second John and the other one third John he says i have many things other than what i've said that i want to tell to you but I don't want to write them with pen and ink. I want to tell them to you face to face. Where do you think that came from? It came from Jesus. That's where it came from. And we are to be people who are countercultural. We will be countercultural. It's not that we're going to say, we're going to show you, we're just going to be like Christ. And we're going to love each other. We're going to be personal. This world is aching for a demonstration of the Word of God in the lives of His people. People who are loving and indeed are personal. In Trafalgar Square in London, it's a wonderful place to visit. I learned what I'm about to share with you after I had visited there. But in this square there's a statue of Lord Admiral Nelson the great hero naval hero of British people. But before there was that statue there it had been placed high above the square. People would look up to it, would look up to it and they would see it but they began to complain, we can't see it get it down here so we can see it. And so due to public pressure, the authorities made a replica of that particular representation of Admiral Nelson and put it down. So that today, when you walk by, you can almost at eye level look into the image of the face of Admiral Nelson. That's what God did for us in Jesus. He got down here so we could see him, so we could know him. And not simply for ourselves, but also so that we could be representations of Him to the world that needs Him so badly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time of study in Your Word. We ask You, Lord, now to stir in our hearts, help us not to forget who You are, Jesus. Not to be ungrateful for what You have done for us. And, Lord, we invite you, I just invite you all to pray with me. Lord, I invite you to fill me. I believe what you say, that of your fullness I have received. And I want you to demonstrate that fullness in my home, in my community, in my place of work, and in my church. Thank you, Lord.